Well, take your Bibles and turn back to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, and I continue to be um, just so grateful for God's sweet providence and uh, the exposition of his word when it lands um, at such a um, relevant season. Uh, and so I think you would all agree that there's no um, more relevant passage right now for all of us to be grappling with than Romans chapter 13. And so let me reread verses one through seven. This is our text we started looking at last week and we hopefully will finish it up this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse one, Paul writes, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which, are, excuse me, those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Father, thank you for uh, the timeliness of this text, and we just ask that as we uh, hear it and um, learn more about it and seek to apply it in these uh, uh, days in which we're living, uh, there's so many questions that uh, we all have in our minds, so many dilemmas that uh, I know this sermon won't uh, solve, but uh, I pray that you would use it to uh, just make us good Bereans who just want to go back into your word and, and really study it out to figure out what we should believe and what we should think and how we should respond uh, to various situations when they uh, come upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Romans 13 is the key text in the New Testament regarding a Christian's relationship to the government that God has sovereignly placed them under. And I mentioned last week that uh, this uh, passage could not have come at any better time because we are living in a volatile time in our nation's history when government leaders are being vilified, not just by the press, but even by some Christians. Our president, Donald Trump, seems to be the main target of many of these uh, ruthless and relentless attacks. Now, granted, he brings a lot of these attacks on himself by uh, some of the juvenile ways he speaks and behaves, which often seem very unpresidential, and uh, which makes him the brunt of merciless parody in our society. Um, our president's faults and failures are glaring. But as flawed as his character may be, many of his convictions and the principles he stands for are in line with biblical principles. And while Trump may have an enigmatic way of doing 
things, God is using him to accomplish good and righteous things. When he was running for president, like many of you, I was very concerned about his morality and and integrity in light of his just general arrogance and um, multiple marriages and what seemed to be self-absorbed business dealings. And when it came down to voting for him or Hillary, I decided to vote for Pence. (laughs) Meaning I voted for Trump and have been praying that God would use his godly vice president to lead his boss to Christ. Just like God used Daniel to lead Nebuchadnezzar to repent and submit his life to the one true God. This past April, I was privileged to receive an invitation from Kevin Brady's office to participate in a conference call with President Trump. Not just me, mind you, it was along with 600 other faith leaders uh, in our area. Um, And so I thought, well, this would be an interesting phone call to be a part of. And so I signed up and I dialed in at the scheduled time and waited and a few minutes later, the President of the United States came on the phone. And I actually put it on speaker and Kelly and our kids were there listening in to this historic event in the Ramey household. We were having a conversation with the President of the United States. And the first thing he did was begin quoting scripture and affirming us as pastors, as ministers, and thanking us for being willing to follow their guidelines and close our churches to help mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. Then Pence got on the phone and he also quoted scripture as well and he expressed his gratitude and appreciation for us and they were both extremely gracious and extremely sincere in how they interacted with us. In other words, Donald Trump was extremely presidential. And especially to the three ministers that they had pray as part of this phone call, there was a Catholic priest, there was a Jewish rabbi, and there was Franklin Graham. And I just wanted you to know that I was literally moved to tears during this phone call, listening to Trump and Pence because I felt like I was listening to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And it gave me hope that God is at work answering not only my prayers, but the prayers of many Christians that our president would become truly born again. And you know as well as I do, most people come to faith in Christ in the midst of a, what? Crisis. That may be your testimony. You came to Christ in a moment of a crisis, a time of crisis. And so God in his providence has brought all these crises, one crisis on top of another crisis during the reign of our president. Perhaps it's to bring him to Christ. Listen, if God saved Nebuchadnezzar, He can save Donald Trump, amen? In fact, when Trump asked Franklin Graham to close our call in prayer, it was very touching to hear Franklin pray personally for Melania and for Barron and their husband and their father that God 
would sustain them in the midst of all the pressures that they face and the burdens that they carry on behalf of our country. I say all that because the bottom line is whether you like the guy or not, whether you agree with the guy or not, God has sovereignly ordained that he would be our president right now and we have a biblical obligation to honor and obey him. That's the point of this passage. Paul was writing to believers living and ministering in the capital city of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about Roman history, the emperors of Rome who reigned over them were some of the most ungodly, immoral, self-serving, tyrannical leaders who ever lived. And yet Paul said, submit to them even if they fail or when they fail. And as a Roman citizen and cell, Paul understood firsthand that since every government is led by flawed, sinful people, there will inevitably abuse, be, be abuses of authority and, and, uh, and corruption and injustice, but that doesn't give us the right to rebel against it or to seek to overthrow it. Certainly there is a place for respectful appeal and holding those in positions of authority accountable for their actions and seeking to correct and reform how they may do their job. As a Roman citizen himself, Paul appealed to the authorities in Rome when he was unjustly arrested and flogged. But at the same time, Paul was well aware that the very core of the Christian faith that he was preaching, the death of Jesus for the salvation of sinners, was the result of an epic fail by the political and spiritual authorities in his day who unjustly tried and wrongfully executed the Son of God. Talk about an epic failure in leadership. And yet the early Christians saw God's sovereign hand at work even in the miserable failure of their authorities to praise those who do good and punish those who do evil. In fact, they were guilty of calling good evil and evil good. Listen to what the the apostles prayed in Acts chapter four. This was after they were arrested and told not to preach anymore about Jesus. Acts chapter four, verse 24, they said this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so even in the midst of the failure of their political and religious leaders, spiritual leaders, They entrusted themselves to the sovereignty of God. This is all part of God's providence. He's working out his plans, even through sinful men and even through sinful choices and decisions that they've made. God is being honored. God is being glorified. His purposes are being accomplished. His kingdom is being advanced. And so with that in mind, 
let's return to Romans 13, where Paul laid out three aspects of our duty as Christians to honor and obey the governing authorities that God has sovereignly placed over us, and here's the line, even when they fail. Even when they fail. Now, again, I just want to remind you that, that Paul wasn't trying to cover every possible situation or scenario when the authority over us may fail to live up to their God-given responsibility to praise good and punish evil. His concern is simply submission to governing authorities, period. That's the point he's trying to make here. And so again, there's gonna be questions, there's gonna be dilemmas in your mind that uh, will come up as we study this and, and, and no one sermon or even a sermon series could address all of them. Uh, but hopefully, again, this will just drive you back to the word and, and uh, to be a good Berean and, and figure this stuff out. Uh, what do I believe about this? What do I believe about this? How should I respond in this situation or that situation? God will help you uh, with his spirit to illuminate you uh, to know what to do. But let's, again, just be reminded of the first uh, aspect that we looked at last week, and that was the rule about submission, the rule about submission. And Paul very clearly says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And that word subjection is hupotasso, which is, uh, means placing yourself under someone of higher rank. It's a, it's a soldier term, a soldier submitting to a superior officer. And so Paul was commanding all of us as Christians to gladly and willingly submit to the governing authorities um, who rule or reign over us. And while Paul was specifically here referring to governing authorities, um, generally this command applies to anyone who God has placed an authority over us. That might be your husband, uh, your parent, your boss, your elder, your teacher, your coach, you fill in the blank, right? Authority and submission is all over our society. It's inherent in, in, in humanity. Uh, there is no one not under some kind of authority. Even your family dog or cat is under the authority of probably the smallest kid in the house that looking for somebody to exercise authority over, right? And so he takes it on the dog and the cat, right? He, he bosses them around. Um, our natural bent is to resent and resist and rebel against the authority God puts over us. We don't want anyone telling us what we can and cannot do. But again, Paul couldn't have made it any more plain. All authorities in all places are to be honored and obey. And he gave no qualification or condition to our submission, whether they were competent or incompetent, kind or cruel, moral or immoral, just or unjust, godly or ungodly. He said, submit. So that's the rule for submission. And then secondly, we began looking last week at the rationale for submission and with that little word for in verse one, Paul begins a list of reasons why we should be in subjection to the governing authorities. And the first reason is, all authority is ordained and established by God. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. In other words, all authority comes from God. The concept itself of government was established by God. Every government official is positioned by God. And so we need to understand, government is not a human invention. It's not something that we came up with. Uh, it is a divine institution 
that God established shortly after the flood. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. See, God knew what would happen if we were left to ourselves, uh, allowed to exist without any authority, without any kind of accountability. Our sin, our rebellion would go unchecked. Um, Our depravity would be unleashed and chaos would ensue. And so God established government to restrain sin, to maintain law and order. Otherwise, society would degenerate into anarchy and inevitably we would destroy one another and ultimately ourselves. So God has wisely chosen to rule and reign over the earth and accomplish his divine purposes through the human leaders and governments that he sovereignly raises up and tears down. And again, this is a basic biblical principle in both the Old and New Testament that God controls the rise and fall of world leaders. Psalm 75, 7, he puts down one and exalts another. Isaiah 46, 11, calling the man of my purpose, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, calling him and to accomplish his purposes. Daniel 2, 21, says God removes kings and establishes kings. Uh, Daniel 5, 21, uh, this was the lesson that God wanted to teach Nebuchadnezzar that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whomever he wishes. And then remember Jesus' words to Pontius Pilate when Pontius Pilate said to him, hey, why aren't you talking to me, man? Don't you know I could, I've got the power of life and death, man? I've got authority to, to, to kill you or let you go. And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So there's no, there's no position of authority, there's no one in a position of authority that God has not put there for his purposes and plans for this world and guess what, your life. There's no one in a position of authority over you who has not been put there by God to accomplish his purposes, his plans in your life. We learned last week that based on what Paul said here, that the authority that leaders have is derived from God, it's delegated by God, and as such they are ministers and servants of God. And a couple times, uh, in fact three times, uh, Paul refers to leaders as either ministers or servants of God. You see that in chapter four, or excuse me, in verse four, and also in verse six. And so, This is kind of where we ended last week, that since the authority of government officials is delegated, that means it is also limited. In other words, it is not absolute authority. And this is the the guiding principle. You ready? Listen carefully, okay? If anyone in authority over us ever commands us to do something God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands, we must disobey them in order to disobey, or excuse me, in order to obey God. Let me say that again. If anyone in authority over us ever commands us to do something God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands, we must disobey them so that we can obey God. And so here's the exception. If you say, well, what do we, time out, what about this? What about? Well, here's the one exception. When man's laws contradict or conflict with God's laws, civil disobedience is unavoidable and justifiable. 
And I mentioned quickly uh, as we wrapped up some examples of what we call civil disobedience uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew midwives uh, would be a, a good example. In Exodus chapter 1, you remember that Pharaoh commanded that all the, 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 the in order to curb the, the overpopulation of the, the Israelites in Egypt, he told the midwives to, 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 to kill all the, the males. If it, was a, if it was a boy baby, kill him. If it was a girl baby, let him live. And so listen to what it says, Exodus 1.15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shiprah and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then you shall li- she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Another example would be uh, in the book of Daniel. In fact, there's uh, multiple examples uh, in the book of Daniel uh, of, of civil disobedience. One was um, in Daniel chapter one when uh, Daniel and his uh, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought into the king's uh, kind of training program, the kind of leaders in training, and they were required to eat uh, certain foods that were, um, that were not kosher. They, were, they would cause them to violate the, the Hebrew law. And so they appealed, Daniel appealed and said, hey, can we just eat uh, you know, vegetables and, and, and water and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and not eat this, uh, all this meat and we, we, we don't want to be defiled. And so uh, thankfully the, the, the leader uh, over them um, granted them their appeal and uh, God blessed them. Remember they were healthier after just 10 days. Talk about a, you know, I'm not advocating the Daniel diet. I'm just saying, wow, in 10 days, they look better than everyone else, just eating the vegetables and, and, and drinking the water and abstaining from the other things. How about Daniel chapter three? You remember when Nebuchadnezzar created that huge image and then required everybody in his kingdom to bow down and worship that image. And as he looked across the landscape and everyone was bowed on their face, he saw three figures standing up tall. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not about to bow down and worship an idol. And so what happened? They got arrested, right? And they were thrown into the fiery furnace and uh, they had a visitor. And I would submit to you that that was a pre-incarnate visitation of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, there in that furnace with them, protecting them and providing for them. And and of course, Nebuchadnezzar eventually released them and honored their God for protecting them. And then, uh, of course, there's Daniel chapter six when uh, Daniel again uh, was um, looked down upon by the fellow uh, satraps and and, and kingdom workers, the commissioners. They were looking for a way to trap uh, Daniel and get him arrested and get him him out of the picture. Uh, they, just did, they despised him and his commitment to Christ or commitment to God, I should say. And so they got the king of that day, King Darius, to sign 
this uh, decree that if anyone prayed to anyone but him for 30 days, uh, they would get arrested and thrown into the lion's den. Well, guess what Daniel said? Well, I'm not about to pray to anybody but God. And so he just went back to his house and prayed every morning, noon, and night, just like he always had. And of course, these guys knew that they would be able to catch him. And they did, and, and Darius felt really bad about it, but he had kind of signed that decree. He had no choice. His hands were tied, and so he threw Daniel into the lions. And as you know, the Lord closed the mouths of the lions, and Daniel came out. And again, Darius, Darius may have even gotten saved through this um, because of Daniel's testimony. And then probably more familiar are the apostles in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Um, if you remember, uh, this is the same passage that I read earlier that uh, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel and uh, they were told that they couldn't preach anymore. In Acts chapter 4 verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And so they were like, well, okay, but just, okay, just, just don't do it again. And they let them go. And uh, they just kept right on preaching. And of course, they got arrested again and imprisoned again. Um, and then an angel came and released them. And they had to go out and catch them again a third time. And uh, they brought them together and said, guys, we told you not to preach about Jesus. And in chapter 5, verse 28, it says, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's the biblical basis for civil disobedience. That verse right there, Matthew, or excuse me, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. If you remember how all this ended, um, they decided to just whip them and let them go. And so it says they took his advice and after calling, this is Gamaliel's advice, hey, you're not gonna stop these guys either, no matter what. If this is a, a true movement of God, you're not gonna stop it. So you might as well just let them go. So they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. There have been other examples uh, of civil disobedience throughout church history. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the Scottish Covenanters. Um, in the 1600s, the King of England was considered the supreme ruler over the affairs, not just the government, but also the church. And he declared himself not only king of the nation, but also the king of the church. And refusing to honor him and pray to him would result in torture and death. And of course, as you can imagine, thousands of Christians, in, particularly in Scotland, signed, uh, you say, well, we're not gonna have any of that. We're not gonna be a part of that. And so they signed the National Covenant, affirming their belief that in spiritual matters, they would only acknowledge one head of the church, and that was, of course, Jesus Christ. Well, the king regarded these Scottish covenanters as they were called as disloyal rebels and sought to destroy them. And so he specially recruited men from prisons 
and the worst and most violent segments of society and gave these guys full authority to hunt them down in every moor and every glen and maim and kill them in any way they wanted to. And because of the fear of persecution and death, some who had signed the covenant fell away from the cause, but hundreds of others maintained their sole allegiance to the king of kings and his kingdom, and it cost them their life. They were martyred for their commitment to Christ. We may never be in that position as Christians living in this country, but if we ever are, we must obey God rather than men. We must also be prepared to incur men's wrath and be willing to endure whatever punishment may come. And so that's the first reason or rationale for submission is all authority is ordained and established by God. But there's a second reason that that Paul gave here in Romans 13, and it's in verse 2. Notice he says, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So the second reason is refusal to to submit to governing authorities is rebellion against God. Refusal to submit to your authority is rebellion against God. And again, this is just a simple, simple logic here, okay? If God instituted government and ordained the governing authorities over us, if we resist and rebel against them, we are ultimately resisting and rebelling against who? God. And so again, how does this apply generally? And, and principally to all of us. Well, listen, kids, the, the point for you is whenever you dishonor your parents, whenever you disobey your parents, you are ultimately dishonoring and disobeying God. You're not just rebelling against mom and dad. You're rebelling against the almighty God of the universe. That may be why in the Old Testament, Teenage rebellion, for example, was considered a capital crime. If you rebelled against your mom and dad, you'd get stoned to death. Because that was ultimately directed, that rebellion was ultimately directed to God. And so this is, again, very sobering that refusal to submit to governing authorities or those authorities that God has placed over us is rebellion against God. Which leads us to our third reason why we should submit, and that is rebellion against authority will be punished. Rebellion against authority will be punished. Notice he says, therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed to the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, anyone who refuses to submit to their authorities deserves to be punished by those authorities. And this isn't referring necessarily to receiving divine punishment, but being punished by the government for breaking the law, for failing to submit to them. And divine judgment comes through divinely ordained government. That's the way God set it up. That's why God, excuse me, established government in the first place to punish those who do evil or do what is wrong and to praise or reward those who do good or do what is right. 
Notice he goes on to say in verse 3, four rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. In other words, people who do what is right have no need to fear the authorities. But those who do what is wrong should fear them because they deserve to be punished by them. And, and this, is, this is just how it is. I mean, you, we, we all know what this feels like. That if you're obeying the law, you're relaxed. But if you're breaking the law, you're tense, you're nervous. If you drive 55 when the speed limit says 55, you've got nothing to be afraid of. But if you're doing 70, you're always looking in your rearview mirror, you're scared about getting pulled over by a police officer and him writing you a ticket, right? You know what that feels like? That's why it's good to take the policeman test. I don't know what it is about my wife other than that she's a much more law-abiding citizen when it comes to driving than I tend to be. And so she notices the police everywhere. And, and, and I'm talking about when I'm driving. She's like, honey, there's a police officer. Hey, do you know you just passed a police officer? Hey, here comes a police officer. I'm like, babe, right? So, so if I'm like doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm like, she's like, hey, there's a, I'm like, so? Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why, why would you? But she, she's always very conscientious about making sure driving the speed limit and not texting and driving and all those things, right? Hey, there's a police officer. And um, in fact, we had a little uh, uh, test last Wednesday night. We were driving home from uh, church and we had to take two cars to get here. And so we were uh, driving home and she was in front of me and I was you know, following her because I'm always submissive to my wife. So I'm, I was following, no, just kidding. Uh, but I was just having to be behind her. And so uh, all of a sudden this police officer pulls up right next to me. Here's Kelly, here's me, and here's another car right here. And this police officer comes up right next to me and lights up and I'm like, Immediately going, what did I do? They're thinking, what, what, and I really, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was going the speed limit and I did have my phone up and I was looking at it and I was like, oh, maybe he's pulling me over. He saw the glare of the screen and he's telling me, hey, pull over, you're texting and driving or you're at least looking at your phone, you're driving. Well, he was pulling over the guy next to us and he did, so we ended up getting home. So of course, I drive in the driveway, Kelly's in there. Hey, did you think that guy was pulling you over? <laughs> I'm like, no. I wouldn't do anything wrong. Um, the question is, does your, when you see a police officer, does your heart jump? Or are you happy to see them? Right? Do you, do you, do you, do you quick check your speedometer and tap your brakes? Right? Or, I mean, or you just kind of keep cruising down the road because, right? I mean, I've had it both ways. I, I've been pulled over for speeding. Don't judge me. You have two, I'm sure, at one point in your life. Everybody's been pulled over at least once in their life, right? Um, if not, you're missing out. You just got to have that experience sometime in your life, right? I, I, I've been pulled over for speeding, and I've also been pulled over for drunk driving. And you're like, what? I thought you didn't drink. Well, you're right. I don't drink, but I still got pulled over for drunk driving. And the way I reacted, by the way, was totally different on those two occasions because I was guilty of the former and I knew I deserved to get a ticket, so I was scared. 
because I was speeding. But the, the latter I was innocent of, and so I was honestly confused why I was getting pulled over. In fact, it turned into uh, uh, kind of a joke, um, not just for Kelly and I, but even for the police officer who pulled me over. And it was late at night, and we were, when I was a youth pastor in California, and we had dropped off some kids at their house, and we were just driving home, and it was like one of these youth events that were super late, right? And so I apparently was tired and, and uh, riding the white line, which I guess is a sure sign that you're, you know, trying to make it home, you know, you see you're falling the white line. And so anyway, the guy pulls me over, he walks up, and says, have you been drinking tonight? I said, no, sir. He said, well, you're kind of driving a little bit erratically. And Kelly's over there chuckling, going, well, that's the way he always drives. It's kind of erratically. And so he said, would you please step out of the car? I said, yes, sir. And I got out, and he took me back. And uh, he got out his pen, said, look at, follow the pen, please. And I had to do this thing, you know. And I was doing it, and he goes, are you sure you haven't been drinking? I said, no, sir, I've never drank a glass of alcohol in my life. And he leaned over, literally leaned over and smelled me. <laughs> and I said, I am so sorry. He said, he said, man, you got all the signs of a drunk person. And by this time, Kelly is just thinking this is the greatest thing ever, you know, laughing up front. And, and uh, I said, sir, I'm sorry. He said, no, that's all right. It's finally, it's, it's good to finally meet somebody normal for a change. And uh, he sent me on my way. But again, what was the point? Uh, when I was doing something wrong, I was scared because I knew I deserved to be punished. When I wasn't doing anything wrong, I wasn't scared, and it was just more like, hey, what's going on here? And ended up having a good laugh about it. Notice what he says in verse 3. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. If you want to be commended rather than condemned, then just do the right thing. If you want to enjoy life free from fear of tickets and fines and jail time, just be a good, respectful, obedient, law-abiding citizen. It's as easy as that. Drive the speed limit. Wear your seatbelt. Put money in the parking meter. Don't drink and drive. Buy your fishing and hunting license. Don't shoplift. Pay your taxes and do a myriad of other things that you would rather maybe not have to do, but you do because you're required to by the government. Is it just me or have you noticed this as well that it seems that most cases of police brutality, which I'm in no way endorsing police brutality, but it's interesting to me, most cases of police brutality in our day result from someone resisting arrest. Have you noticed that? In other words, they refuse to submit to and they fail to obey the commands the police officer gave them. So I've always told our kids, listen, if you ever get pulled over, just do exactly what the police officer tells you to do and you should have nothing to worry about. Why? Because they're a minister of God to you for what? For good, verse 4. That word minister is the word diakonos. It's the word for deacon. Which simply means a servant. So governing authorities serve as representatives of God whether they realize it or not. When that police officer walks up behind you, right, with his flashlight, 
He's a representative of God, whether he realizes or not, whether he acknowledges God or not. And according to Paul, he's there for your good. They're supposed to help restrain evil in their communities, to protect the lives and property of their citizens. I, I appreciate the motto that's still on uh, many police cars. It simply says what? To serve and protect. That's biblical. David, you remember, repeatedly referred to King Saul as the Lord's anointed. And so in spite of Saul's repeated attempts to kill him, David wouldn't ever let his men harm Saul since he was the king. And as such, he was God's man. And God eventually rewarded David and vindicated David by removing Saul and making David the new king. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse four, for it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Talking about the government, it, the government does not bear the sword for nothing. It's a very interesting phrase there, a very important phrase. God has charged the government with the responsibility to enforce the law and punish those who break the law, and he has entrusted the government with the necessary power to do its job. And what I'm referring to here in regards to the sword is the use of force, and in extreme cases, deadly force, properly administered. A sword isn't used to slap a person on the wrist. Hey, quit it, stop it, don't do that again. A sword is used to take their life. A sword is an instrument of death. And so I would say here is the primary New Testament defense of the death penalty. The death penalty is biblical. God instituted it back in Genesis 9, 6, right? When he said uh, uh, that, that, that you shouldn't kill life or life. It's interesting, if you just throw people in prison and uh, let, them, let them rot there for life, you know, have you really, you know, created a deterrent for others, right? But if you um, exact execution, right, that's a deterrent. Like, hey, I'm not gonna kill somebody because if I do, I'm gonna get killed. It's interesting, in some foreign cultures where uh, they treat certain crimes a lot differently than we, we do, if you get caught stealing, what do they do? They cut your hand off. That's a serious deterrent. I, I think they have a whole lot less shoplifting in some of these Muslim countries right, than they do here in our country. According to the Old Testament, uh, and, and particularly the Old Testament law, The death penalty was the required punishment for serious offenses like rape, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, rebellion against parents. We already mentioned that. These were all considered capital crimes. Some argue that capital punishment uh, violates the sixth commandment, thou shalt not, what, kill. But that refers to murder, not punishing someone for murder. 
Others argue that when the Pharisees wanted to stone that woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, let him without sin throw the first stone. Like, in other words, who are you to punish this person when you're a sinner yourself, right? But again, the context was that Jesus was confronting their hypocrisy or the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, not condemning the death penalty. The, the point is that the punishment fits the crime. Execution exacts a life for a life. Jesus he actually told Peter when he whipped out his sword, remember, to, to defend uh, Jesus in the garden when they came to arrest him. And if there was ever a, a righteous time to revolt, that was it. Defending the Son of God. And what did he say? Peter, put your sword away. For all those who take up the sword shall what? Perish by the sword. Paul, in fact, in, 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 even in uh, Acts 25, 11, when he was standing before one of the authorities uh, he was appealing to, he said, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. So even Paul acknowledged there were certain things that we could do that were worthy of death. And so again, that's one of those hot topics you gotta work through and resolve in your mind and your heart using the scriptures as your guide. Notice he goes on and says, for it is a minister, again, the government is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So government acts as God's tool to preserve law and order and inflict punishment on those who break the law. This is not vengeance, this is justice. And we don't have time to get into it, but this would be where you need to camp out a little bit if you wanted to make a case for what's called just war. Like, is it ever right to go to war? Is there a just war? I, I hinted at the fact that, hey, were we just, you know, were we wrong to retaliate against the, the Japanese at Pearl Harbor and, and, and join in the, well, I think many would agree that that was a just cause, that was a just war where evil had to be restrained. And again, we take that from this verse. So again, notice the context here. Some, it's interesting reading commentators, some saying, yeah, Paul just kind of, you know, squeezed this whole thing in about government right here in the letter. It really doesn't seem to fit into the flow. In fact, some even have extreme liberals say uh, this wasn't even written by Paul because it just doesn't, doesn't follow the flow. Well, Paul just got done forbidding individuals from exacting revenge and encouraging them to leave matters of justice in God's hands. Look back at chapter 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for what? The wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So individuals are not authorized to take the law into their own hands, become vigilantes, and punish Wrongdoers, God ordained law enforcement and the justice system for that purpose. And God's wrath often comes through those means, through the government. And God uses law enforcement and the justice system to avenge evil and right wrongs. And so we need to remember this reason uh, why we should submit is because rebellion against authority will be punished. And there's one more reason here, a fourth reason, and that is simply obedience results in a clear conscience. 
Obedience results in a clear conscience. Verse 5, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So the final reason that Paul gave here why we should submit to governing authorities is in order to maintain a clear conscience. And you probably remember back in uh, Romans chapter 2, Paul wrote that even unbelievers know instinctively in their hearts and in their minds what is right and wrong. Why? Because God has given us all a conscience that confirms when we're doing the right thing and condemns us when we're doing the wrong thing. And we all know instinctively that it is good and right to submit to those in authority over us and we feel guilty when we don't unless our conscience has been seared or misinformed perhaps by worldly thinking. You may be familiar with uh, the IRS's conscience fund. You wear that? The conscience fund? Um, it uh, was something that the, the government instituted um, and maintains for those who want to pay their debts to government and remain anonymous. In other words, they don't want to get in trouble for cheating on their taxes. <laughs> so they, they provided a way for people to say, hey, if your conscience is bothering you, right, write us a check, send it in anonymously, and right, because they, they, they're appealing. The, the U.S. government is appealing to our consciences, knowing that people are losing sleep because they've, they're, they're not current on their taxes. And, and so uh, even the government understands this principle. And so we need to obey in order to have a clear conscience. And then finally, look at the result of submission. Look at the result of submission here. We've seen the rule of submission and the rationale for submission, but this is the result of submission. In these last two verses, verses six and seven, uh, Paul described what being subject to governing authorities looks like practically. For instance, we are obligated to do several things. And the first would be to pay our taxes. Notice verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So not only do we owe the government honor and obedience, we also owe them financial support which out, without which they cannot fulfill their God-ordained role. So just like the Levites in the Old Testament and pastors in the New Testament who devote their entire lives to serving others and have no time to earn a living by other means, governing authorities are to be supported by those they serve. We provide for public servants by paying taxes. Furthermore, we benefit from living in a society with police protection and fire protection and good roads and transportation systems and court systems and so we should be willing to, to bear our share of the cost for these services and privileges that our government provides for us. Now I understand no one enjoys paying taxes and there are many possibly here in our church who cheat on their taxes. You may not like how much you're taxed. You may not agree with how your tax money is spent. But guess what? You need to pay your income tax, your property tax, and other taxes willingly, promptly, and honestly. There's no excuse to falsify our taxes. There's no excuse to evade paying taxes. 
I brought up the American Revolution last week. As if it couldn't get any more unpatriotic than that. We just celebrated it yesterday as a country, July 4th, Independence Day, our freedom, which was all sparked by the Boston Tea Party, where some disgruntled Americans went in and destroyed somebody else's property because they were protesting what? Taxation without representation. Again, I'm not saying what you need to believe about that. I'm just saying you got to really consider what the Scripture says and, and apply it to these various situations. Even though it may sound so un-American. Um, well, we're Christians before we're Americans, amen? And so we need to think biblically. Notice he goes on to say, render to all what is due them. And he gave a short list of other things that we owe to those in authority over us. He says, tax to whom taxes due. And this is not just income tax or, or property tax. This is probably more the customs tax, things that we transport from one country to another. We need to be willing to pay those taxes. Fear to whom fear. We need to respect and revere uh, the government in the same way that we respect and revere God. We need to fear God. God says fear God and keep his commandments. We need to fear the government and keep their laws. And then honor to whom honor. We're to honor our governing authorities. Even if we disagree with their political opinions or positions and are disgusted by their personal lives, we need to honor them just the same. Christians should never speak in a derogatory way about any governing official. In fact, um, Paul unknowingly did that and felt bad about it. Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul was speaking to the Sanhedrin. He says, brother, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit, do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander says, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so that was kind of an oops moment for Paul. Oops, I didn't know that. Forgive me. Um, and so we need to honor our authorities by the way we think of them and the way we talk about them and the way we talk to them. And I think one of the best ways we can honor our governing authorities is to pray for them. Specifically, that they would understand why they're there and who put them there in the first place. And if our leaders understood that, why they were there and who put them there in the first place, that would be a game changer. Wouldn't you agree? And so we can pray that they would, they would come to grips with that. Well, this passage is really just an exposition of a much simpler statement that Jesus made when the Pharisees were trying to trap him and get him to express disloyalty to the governing authorities in their day, which obviously was the Roman government. 
Luke chapter 20, um, verse 19, and I'll just close with this. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. In other words, we want to pass him off as a traitor and let the, let the Roman government deal with him. They questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to anyone, but teach the way of God and truth. Yeah, well, no, 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 right? They're just uh, kissing up to Jesus right now. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, that was a setup of the century right there. I mean, this was a no-win situation because if Jesus said, well, yeah, of course you're supposed to pay taxes. Well, they despised the Roman taxes. The, the, the Jews hated the tax collectors, right? And so he would turn, the, the, the people would turn against them. But if he said, no, don't pay your taxes, well, then they could easily say, well, look, he's, he's a traitor. Rome, you got to take him. He's a traitor. He's saying, telling people, he's going around telling people not to pay their taxes. Well, they would have shut that down really quick, right? But Jesus detected their trickery and said to them, here it is, show me a Daenerys, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Hey, pull out a coin, right? Whose face is on it? Whose inscription is on it? Well, it's just Caesar. It belongs to Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. I mean, this was a brilliant answer. And, and what Jesus did, he, he, number one, affirmed the validity of government and how we're obligated to, to be loyal and submissive and obedient to it and pay our taxes, if you will. But at the same time, he affirmed our ultimate loyalty and submission and obedience is due to God above all else. And honoring and obeying God is the right thing to do since we enjoy all the benefits of living in his world. We breathe his air, we eat his food, we enjoy his good creation. And if what Jesus said was true of Caesar, if it has his picture and name on it, then it belongs to him, so give it to him. The same is true of God. If it has his picture and his name on it, then it belongs to him, and you need to give it to him. And God could hold any one of us up in the palm of his hand and say, whose image and whose inscription does it have? Not Caesar's, but God's. And the fact that we are created in God's image means that we have his picture and his name stamped on us. And so we need to give our lives to God in total submission and obedience. In short, what Jesus was saying is our taxes belong to Caesar, but our lives belong to God. And when you don't give the government what is due them, you get punished. You go to jail for a while. And when you don't give God what is due him, 
you also get punished, but you go to hell forever. We've learned from our study of Romans that every person knows that there's a God who deserves to be honored and obeyed. But we try to suppress that truth so we can keep on living our lives the way we want without any authority, especially out from under God's authority. And I mentioned that conscious fund the IRS still has in place to this day. And if you want to clear your conscience, right, you can contribute anonymously. They received a check one time and it had a note attached to the check. And this is what it said. I've not been able to sleep ever since I cheated you out of some money, so here's a check for $500. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. I believe every person's conscience, every one of your consciences, constantly nags you your entire life as long as you keep cheating God out of the honor and the glory that he deserves from you. And the question that we should ask ourselves is will we be able to sleep tonight knowing that we are withholding from God the honor and glory that he deserves from us? Or can we rest like a baby with a clear conscience because we have given up our lives to Christ? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this clear, relevant teaching from your word. Help us as we seek to make application of it in the various scenarios and situations and dilemmas that we all face in life, trying to sort out these uh, uh, conundrums historically and at present. And, but Lord, thank you for not leaving us with a lack of clarity or uncertainty. The, the word is clear and certain. And Lord, help us as a church to be good examples in our community of what it looks like to be law-abiding citizens. And as such, we would be salt and light and people would see us and see our difference in the way we respect and honor and obey our authorities around us and the laws and it would give us opportunities, Lord, to, to not just pat ourselves on the back as some self-righteous legalist, but as passionate evangelists, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.